0: This episode of The Pillar Podcast is sponsored by an anonymous reader who encourages you to read The Soul of the Apostolate by Dom Jean-Baptiste Chautard. It's in print, should be easy to buy or borrow, and if you have this book already, consider rereading it or lending it to a friend.
1: Hey everybody, welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation where the soul of our apostolate is the interior life, as it should be. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. Ed, hello.
0: Hi, JD. How you doing, man? I am, um, I'm a little tired. I got up very early this morning, uh, which is, you know, I don't, I don't like doing normally, but I did it. And uh, so I'm, it's, uh, it's about midday my time, but I've been at my desk for a little over six hours now. So I'm uh, I'm a little tired, but you know, it's Friday. I'm feeling good. It's been a good week. We're heading into a long weekend. Things are good. I' glad you? to hear. it.
1: Well, we've got a lot of things to talk about, Ed, this week. um, my you know, a story that we have a story that we've spent a lot of time covering has um has reached uh, if not its ultimate end point. It's pretty much its end point, which is to say that we have a resolution to the situation, the long lingering situation of the Diocese of Knoxville, Tennessee. And we will talk about that a little bit later in the show. We'll talk about how that relates to another apostolic visitation. Down there in Tyler, Texas. But before we do that, Ed, I want to just talk about. Um, it sounds cliche to talk about it, but I want to talk about tribalism, political polarization, and tribalism in the life of the church for a few minutes. Is that all right with you? Uh, okay. Here's what I mean. we have Ed right now in the in the life of the church two major events in the life of the church in the United States going on right now. We have the um, the synod on synodality, which the Pope ha- declared um, two years ago, and which is now you know rumbling through its uh, has rumbled through its local and diocesan and continental and intercontinental phases, and is now heading towards a meeting of bishops in October in Rome, at which we will be in attendance. Uh, that's event number one, the Synod on Synodality, and then we have uh, on uh, also happening in the life of the Church in the United States right now, the Eucharistic Revival, a three-year process in which we are, I think, in the in year two now, which will include a Eucharistic Congress at Lucas Oil Stadium in Indiana next summer, and which will continue on past there. Whose point is to whose aim is to inculcate in Catholics a greater devotional. Um, uh, piety, reverence, and appreciation for the Most Holy Eucharist, which, thanks be to God, is a good thing. So we have these two big things going on in the life of the Church, at the Eucharistic Congress slash Eucharistic Revival and Synod on Synodality right now. And I bring them up because I read this week sort of a smattering of Catholic commentary. I don't often read kind of Catholic commentary um, Catholic commentary sites, and, and I was affirmed, reaffirmed in my sort of... Um, Frustration with reading Catholic commentary sites, because, Ed, these two events have become um, partisan political punching bags, both of them. You can go to any kind of conservative-ish, right-leaning, so to speak, uh, Catholic website with a commentary section these days and find a lot of the exact same kind of tired tropes being trotted out about the synod on synodality that we've been hearing for two years, and you can go to any left-leaning, leftish, progressive-identifying Catholic news-ish website right now and read a set of commentaries about the Eucharistic Revival, which are the same commentaries and criticisms that we've been hearing now for at least 18 months. The Synod on Synodality critics all say um, this is um, expensive, cumbersome, onerous, and um, there's probably an agenda hidden in there. The Eucharistic revival critics all say this is expensive, cumbersome, onerous, and there's probably a political agenda hidden in there. And, Ed, it's so predictable. Like, I'm frustrated, irritated with the banality of the, of, of the conversation about these things. Um, are there points of concern about the synod on synodality? Uh, sure, um, we have talked about many of them. Is the is the language of the text frequently kind of just this ecclesial gobbledygook that's hard to unpack? Is the thing... Are there people who are aiming to use the synod on synodality for their own agenda? Yes, that's demonstrated. People in the Holy See who are trying to do that. Is the thing theologically nebulous often at times? Yes. Um, is there a value and a virtue to more consultative conversation in the life of the Church? Also yes. And what frustrates me at is some of the times I read the commentary about this thing, and it's like, yeah, I don't disagree with a lot of the things you're saying about the Synod on Synodality, but some of the people who are writing it are people who are not spending any time listening to anyone in the life of the Church. They're in an echo chamber. And the point of the synodality, Synod on Synodality is get out of an echo chamber. And the people who are criticizing the Eucharistic Revival are in a partisan echo chamber where all they can hear is this mutual reinforcing set of points about the the prospect for for disconnecting adoration from the mass which is not my experience of adoration at all but okay if that's your but like does eucharistic adoration are there is there evidence of religious whose charity is demon, is, is manifested you know by or encouraged by their eucharistic adoration sure and that should be a talking point that probably pushes back but the the the, the these things these events that happen in the life of the church just become Partisan punching bags, and we never have interesting conversations about them, or there's so infrequently interesting conversations about them. And Ed, I'm frustrated about that thing in the church.
0: I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs>
1: I'm not asking for your empathy. I'm just oh. saying uh, we have there, there's a kind of banality to so much of the conversation that, um, and and a kind of tribalistic. Um, Lo- set of loyalty packs that require people to sort of echo the exact same talking points and that impedes the ability to have like real thorough theological or spiritual conversations about the the merits or not merits of things which are happening in the life of the church because you can't trust any of the commentary you know you, you don't know if it's what the person thinks or if it's just what the person feels obliged to say by virtue of the tribe to which they belong and and it's it's not healthy or helpful for us. I, I, perhaps podcast pillar podcast listeners re- realize that already, but I'm just reading the juxtaposition of sin on synodality criticism and eucharistic revival criticism. I, I'm just um, discouraged at the state of much of the conversation in the life of the church right now.
0: Okay, um, I, I'm going to I'm going to post you an unpopular question. Sure, or, I shouldn't say unpopular. I, a question which I think you will find. you won't want to consider the answer that I think is obvious, which is, isn't this what people want though?
1: Affirmation of their biases and a tribe in which to hang their hat.
0: Yes. That no one is reading one or other um, side of this debate with a view, particularly, I mean, obviously there are exceptions and most of them will listen to this podcast, I'm sure. But as a, as a general observation about media consumption, both in and out of the church, People want to read confirmation bias. They want to read something that makes them go, "Yeah, that." Um, th- other people bad, me smart. That's I mean, <laughs> that's that's what people want. That's why it gets written. That's what uh, that I mean. Let's let's be completely honest. I'm going to be generous and say eighty percent. You might think it's higher. You might say it's lower. I don't know. Eighty percent of commentary. The purpose of it being written is not to sway minds. It is to make money. It is a sure.
1: I think that's absolutely so
0: it is. It is the, you know, in the, if, if media consumption is a meal where the restaurant, where the house makes its markup is on the wine and the, the booze is commentary. That's, that's where you're making your money. That's where the markup is. Um, yeah. People, people want to read. The, I mean, they have to, because otherwise they wouldn't be read. Yeah, I don't sure. read them because I don't want to. I'm not that doesn't make me virtuous. It's just I find it boring to read the I'm same I'm just saying we need better wine in the life of the church today. So to Ah. Uh, I hear you, but have you ever made wine, JD? You gotta like veniculture is a thing. I mean, if you have to pick the terroir you want it to come from, you gotta get the right vine. You got are you doing are you doing a blender, are you doing a straight shot? Are you you know you gotta age it? It's like it, it doesn't come out of anywhere. And, you know, it's much easier to just put a couple spoonfuls of sulfides in there and, you know, put it out of a box. It's That's the that's the cheaper method of production. The analogy
1: has exceeded my depth of knowledge about wine such that I, I'll have
0: to trust you at this point. You know, um, I was at dinner last night. Someone um, someone served a bottle of pear wine, homemade pear wine, which um I, I was a little bit unsettled by when it was offered because I thought I've, I've never had that. Uh, and and also, I mean, I'm I like homemade booze, so I was I was I was not afraid of. I was rather enticed by the knowledge that we homemade. It was actually very pleasant. I have had I pear have had wine before, and it is good. I've had perry before. Are you familiar? No. Perry is like um, sparkling cider made with pears rather than apples, though. And it was uh, this this will this will interest you. This is fascinating history. Uh, in in medieval times. Uh, particularly in in sort of Western Europe, England, Germany, France, Perry was actually considered the superior drink to sparkling white wine or champagne, if you're being domain specific. Uh, Perry was considered the the real highfalutin beverage, but of course now it's marketed alongside like Magners and stuff. And uh, it's considered lowbrow. It's considered a sort of fruity beer as opposed to an elevated kind of champagne.
1: Perry? Are you saying pear, P-E... Spell this word for me if you would. Please.
0: I believe it is spelled P-E-R-R-Y.
1: P-E-R-R-Y. Or maybe it's
0: P-E-A-R-R-Y.
1: It is P-E-R-R-Y. Ah. And, um, yeah, that sounds, uh, that sounds very, very good. The problem that I'm identifying again, it's not novel. I'm not saying anything that is, that is or should be groundbreaking. <laughs> but, um, there's a desire, as you say, in the life of the church. If the church is, is especially if the church is the whole of your sort of um, human society, uh, which it is, I think, for many of our listeners, the, the 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 desire to build kind of tribal, or or to forge, or to find identity in meaning, in security or safety, and tribal alliances is often such an impediment to. Whatever, whether you want to call it synodality or not, such an impediment to fruitful, useful, valuable discernment in the life of the church about sort of how God is calling the church to act, and um, and it needs to be skewed. And it, I don't know that it's actually easy. You don't agree? I'm going to
0: push back. I'm going to. I'm going to say you're you're you're. You don't practice what you preach.
1: I don't want to fall into a sort of trap of
0: of, um, of, of
1: cliche here, because as I say, what, I, what I'm what i saying does feel like a cliche, but I I, I I find myself concerned about this reality.
0: I understand your concern, but I, I think it's fair to say that no man is an island, or lady. Ladies also are not islands. Um, to say that the temptation to forge sort of tribal identity or find, you know, um, in groups to which one belongs or wishes to belong or whatever as a sort of self-identifying property i i think it's unavoidable it's natural human instinct we're a social creature that's that's going to happen and
1: yeah i do think it, that's true so when i say it needs to be excused, what am out. i saying what,
0: what do you think i'm getting at well you it's not what i think you're saying what you did say was that that was an impediment to true synodality and uh you know a sort of a, a better fostering of communion and and well-being within the the wider body of christ which is the church and i would agree with that but it doesn't have to be and and i think um it would be simplistic and i think uh somewhat ridiculous to sort of wish away oh if only people were tribal I, I, I agree. Yeah. um but i i would suggest they take a leaf out of your uh, out of your your practice rather than your words which is you often uh i find are friends with people that would be in what i i think most people would assume to be a different ecclesiological or theological or um, ideological tribe or camp than you that you have friends across the aisle you might say you have quite a lot of them uh, but this is not because you are a sort of free-floating individual but it's because you're you ascribe yourself to several different uh, tribes you you the friends you have that I for example would not share a beer with and there aren't many, but there are There are a few. There are people that you say, oh, so-and-so, you know them, they're great. And I go, yeah, I, nope, nope, no thank you. I would um, love,
1: at the at the commercial or some other time, I'd really love
0: for you to give me some examples of that. I mean, I believe you, I just don't... Um... Oh, it's happened. We've been at places. You're like, oh, there's so so let's go say hi. And I'm like, why would why would you want to do that? I, anyway, this is not the point. The, um, the point that I'm trying to make is those people, usually the reason you are close to them and are friendly with them and have friend, you know, deep and abiding friendship and personal relations with people that cut across one section of sort of ecclesiological or ideological or however you want to call it tribal lines. is because they're members of a different tribe or in group of which you are also a member, whether it's a canon, you know, whether it's canon lawyers yeah, in our case, Canada, or
1: canonical circles cut across people
0: theolo- canonical circles, people who practice in, really in chanceries, people who work yeah. in parish ministry, people who, um, you know, all live or work in one diocese, whatever that all of these things are different groups to which people belong. And I think the problem is not that um, we, we self sort into these groups, it's inevitable, we're, we're social creatures, that's going to happen. I think the problem is if you only have one identifier if your thing is you know i'm just this kind of catholic and i don't know anyone who's not this kind of catholic that's the problem is that we become one dimensional in our in our in our self identification one dimensional in our place in the church and therefore one dimensional in the people we know and the views that we expose ourselves to and everything else so i think it's not a question of um you know, we're too tribal. We're always going to be too tribal. You know, we we, we we've been tribal since you know we were gang, rival gangs of monkeys beating each other with bones. Uh, the the important thing is to belong to more than one tribe, to have a diversity of experience, to have a diversity of experience of communion in the church, in whatever way that is, to make sure that you don't just sort of live in in one echo chamber because that's when it becomes an echo chamber if you 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 can't be in two echo chambers at once by definition and so therefore if you're in more than one echo chamber you're by definition not in an echo chamber you're you know you're in a part of a wider conversation i think that is what we often don't see is that there is this sort of reduction of viewpoint and personal affinity and affiliation and that is sad Um, i think that's right because it's limiting of human experience
1: i think that's very well said the other thing that i want to get at is not as you're right you're right the other thing i want to get at i'm i'm is not that we have to sort of askew identity in in sort of a subgroup or or recognition of the reality of subgroups, because it's impossible. I think you're right about that. But uh, such things become dangerous if they are become the sort of limits of our perspective, as you say. If we are so hidebound to sort of only associate only association with a small set of Catholics who think like us, that becomes very dangerous. And you can find that kind of groupthink um, and sort of group uh, self-segregation on both the sort of cath- ecclesio left and the ecclesio right, I know people push back on me for using left and right, and I understand why. But for the moment, it's the phrase I'm using. You can find kind of that gr- just, 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 just cut out the, cut out
0: the context, Just say orthodox and heretical. I mean, that won't yeah. offend anyone, right? You can find
1: that self segregation among orthodox groups or heretical groups with equal uh, with equal fervor, and it can be unhealthy in both cases. Um, but the pro- but it's not only that self segregation. It's also when Um, sort of alliance, ideal, and I don't want to say ideological alliance because ideology implies something bad, but a common way of thinking, a common way of seeing things, the natural forms of friendship which emerge from people who see the the world the same way, which I think, you know, there are some beautiful reflections on friendship from people like John Senior who say, I think it's, I can't remember if it's Senior who, who says that a friend is someone who who says, what, me too, I, I thought I was the only one who sees the world in this way, or who experiences the world in this way. So it's natural for friendships to be formed in those ways, I think that's right. Where that becomes dangerous is, one, where it becomes the limiter of perspective because of self-segregation, or two, where alliance, connection, theological sympathy, theological common cause, ecclesio-political the- common cause, whatever it is, becomes something which which prevents one from saying what is true, even to one's friends or even if it's critical of one's friends, right? So that um, if, if all we can do because we sort of share the same vision or co- goals or desire for the life of the Church is to be mutually reinforcing of one another's ideas, good or bad, or mutually reinforcing of one another's projects, good or bad, or leadership or administration, good or bad, that's when it— we go from not from from having problems with uh, with sort of anemia of ideas, a kind of the the the, the thing which comes from no, no nothing fresh entering, but that's when it becomes sort of the corruption and decay of ideas and projects by virtue of, of of a failure of courage. Effectively, it seems to me, and and there's a lot of that in the church. There's a lot of self satisfied, mutual congratulatory clubs that that emerge naturally. I don't mean to say that with too much. Or disdain, but because we're very, we're very
0: self-satisfied and mutually congratulatory. Yeah, we're it's just for a group too. Know. I
1: well, but I mean, but even there, I mean, I I think the pillar functions well when you call me on my and I call you on your right. Um, and uh, and I don't always like being called, and you don't always like being called. I'm probably less receptive to it than you because I can be that way. But the pillar function, the, the pillar doesn't function well if every single idea you have, I say, is a good idea or vice versa, right? I mean, it simply wouldn't. No.
0: No, it would not be good. That would be bad. (laughs) But again, we, we, but this is the thing is we like each other even when we don't see things the same way. Like, we, we are, between the two of us, we are, I I think it would be fair to say, uh, either self identifying or we have identified the other with a a sufficient diversity of in groups and movements and thought, schools of thought and and other things that, um, in normal, we did this in Orlando. uh, a couple of times with each other when we were having drinks or different. and I would say, Oh, is, or, you know, I'd say, of this or that bishop that we saw, oh, is he one of your people? And, you right, know, right. Is, is he, he's one of your kind, isn't he? And, you know, depending on the context, we'd know what the other meant by that. But I mean, I think that's helpful that, you know, it's we tend to see the world differently because we've experienced the world differently and we know different people. And I was we thinking appreciate about you.
1: Things. I was thinking about you uh, on Tuesday. It was my son's birthday. And, um, We were, we, the nightmare birthday. The nightmare. It was my son's birthday, and our dog died on his birthday. And also, so this is the deal. This is a diversion, but this is the deal. We, um, (laughs) we had been teasing him. He turned six, and we had been teasing him that, um, he kept asking what he was getting for his birthday, what he was getting for his birthday. And we kept teasing him that he was going to get underwear and socks for his birthday. And we just kept telling him that. He's saying, no, 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 paha. Um, so when he came down from his room, you know, when he woke up on his birthday, he came downstairs and there were just two little packages on the table. And he, you know, said, are those my birthday presents? And we said, "Yep." And we made a big deal of everyone sort of sitting down on the floor that he was going to open his birthday presents. And then he opened them and it was so funny. It was a package of socks and a package of underwear. And we thought that was super funny, but he was <laughs> he sad. did not he, find that amusing. He did but... not think it was funny. He was disappointed. And then, you know, we told him like, oh, there's some other presents. We gave him some Legos or whatever. But, um, so that was how his birthday started, was mom and dad playing this joke on him that he didn't understand. He was too young, I think, to understand it. We'll try again next year and see if it goes over better. But then, you know, which he, would have, he wouldn't have, have thought about again. But then, like, two hours later, our dog died. So the kid had just kind of a bummer of a birthday uh, from that perspective. But anyway, we... Um, we call that a formative experience. Yeah, I He's think gonna... about, I think I will spend thousands of dollars in my life... For him to unpack with a mental health professional, the birthday in which he only as he remembers it, he only got socks and underwear and then his dog died. Um, but anyway, at the you know, at the end of his at the end of the day, Kate and I prayed over him, as we do for all our kids on their birthday, in the kind of charismatic intercessory prayer mode in which we ourselves are formed. And I thought of you because I realized that if you had walked into the room at that time, nothing about what we were doing you would have even recognized as being Christian. Like you would have been so <laughs> entirely unfamiliar with our uh, that's not fair i would have immediately recognized it as
0: christian even if only because it was the flynn's engaged in it and i would have therefore (laughs) presumed that it was christian (laughs) but but was was there any touching involved when you say you
1: prayed over well yeah when you pray over someone you lay hands on them so to speak (laughs)
0: Eh. I was having this conversation at dinner last night. I was trying to explain to someone that one of the reasons I get really uncomfortable whenever I go to get my haircut is because since my actual barber closed over COVID and never reopened, I have to go to my wife's sort of haircuttery salon place. And the woman is constantly trying to get me to submit to a shampoo and quote unquote scalp massage. I "I don't, I don't want to be touched. That's, is that so weird? I do. No, I don't, I I certainly don't want that, but Anyway, um, it's kind of point, like that with prayer. I mean, I'm in favor of prayer, and I'm in favor of haircuts, and um, I'm even in favor of intercessory prayer. I just, you know, I, I like my space. I don't I know like if you would have
1: our, our mode of. Inter, um, sometime I'm. Sometimes I'm going to have a group of charismatics pray over you, like we say things like "Yes, Lord," and "Yes, come, Lord Jesus," and things like this. You're, <laughs> things that would not you would not understand or be comfortable with. Um, I'm sure, it's fine. Okay, but the point the point is um, the point I was making is look. Yeah, I think you're right. I, well, not the point I was making, but the point you've brought me to is you're right. It, it, is not, it is neither natural nor realistic to say we cannot, should not, ought not belong to those tribes. The, heart, the, the dangerous thing is when an idea comes from some other tribe, some other corner in the life of the church, and we reject it out of sort of partisan gamesmanship without reflecting on what's good about it or what we need to reflect about it. What bothers me about the sort of reflexive criticism of the Synod on Synodality is a failure to say, but do I need to incorporate into my own life as a Christian a greater commitment to hearing other people's voices, a greater commitment to sort of facilitating common prayer and apostolate? All other criticism of the Synod on Synodality, great, fine. But when there's a failure of self-reflection to consider what might be there, that is of particular value for me, for my tribe, for my mode of being, um, then th- then um, that's when we've sort of just descended into sociological instead of genuine sort of discernment on a spiritual level. If the rejection of the Eucharist revival is just because it's from those people over there, what would their... Mantillas and whatnot, and we're not going down the Mantilla road again. But what with their mantillas and whatnot, if the rejection of the Eucharistic revival is merely that, it's from those people who were on the opposite side of some other issue that we disagree about, or who are have political views that we don't like, or are too conservative, whatever, whatever. Without reflecting on, like, oh, but would my spiritual life be enhanced by a greater commitment to adoration of the Blessed Sacrament, and would other people's spiritual life be reflective of that too? That actually, things can be reduced. Like things can become so. These issues, these these things in the life of the church can become so politicized as to be funny. I mean, it's funny to to read like people saying like, "Well, I'm not trying to criticize adoration, but it's obviously bad." Or, "I'm not trying to criticize a synod on." I'm not trying to criticize listening, but when these people say listening, they they couldn't possibly mean anything good. It's like, well, maybe actually, both adoration and listening have something to commend to them even while there's plenty of criticism to go around about the things that are being discussed. And and that just, it just seems to me to be so unhealthy and, and everywhere now.
0: Yeah, That's probably true. It would help me if it was better, if there was better writing. It would help me if it was better writing too, to be sure. It would help me if it was better writing. I'll read the same column 10 times if, if the writing's funny. And if different. it's
1: funny and convincing and compelling and these kinds of things.
0: Well, it doesn't have to convince me it just it has to no, entertain no, no, me. No, no, that's commentary is entertainment let's just let, let's be honest that's what it is is it's entertainment that's it's that's its function that.
1: yeah i mean it's a,
0: okay again 80 20 split but uh, yeah
1: no that, persuasive commentary is entertaining entertainment is a uh, entertainment is a um one of the things which makes something persuasive
0: i feel in like that same, was a very profound point but i'm not sure i followed it well, in I, I, the same I'm, way
1: that like for a piece of sacred art to be to to really, like, convey the sacred truths that it means to convey, it has to have the aesthetic qualities of symmetry and, I don't know them, symmetry and luminescence and these kinds of things in order to convey the sacred
0: truth that it intends to convey. For
1: a piece of writing, I know about I think, as much
0: about sacred art as you do about winemaking. I'm just going to put that for,
1: out there. For a piece of writing to convey the truth which it intends to convey or to convince of the argument it intends to convince, I do think that— entertainment and being entertaining being sort of winsome or being um uh you know pleasurable to read is is a is a feature of of its um of that which makes it um persuasive or compelling that's all
0: i think that's true it's a more profound point than i was making but um <laughs> i'm glad well, you did what i i was making a rather baser point which is when i read commentary i don't read it to be informed or enlightened or persuaded i just read it because i want someone to make me laugh and that might be but my point is someone who makes you
1: laugh has the ability to persuade you of much more than you probably concede.
0: Well, if anyone ever manages it, I'll let you know.
1: (laughs) All right. We're done talking about this. We're going to talk about um, Strickland and Sticka, the visitations du jour when we come back from this message. Ed, this week's episode of The Pillar Podcast is brought to you, as you know, by an anonymous reader who encourages you, our listeners, to read The Soul of the Apostolate, Ed, which is um, written by whom?
0: Uh, it's written by Dom ba- Jean-Baptiste Chotard.
1: That's right. The Soul of the Apostolate by Dom Jean-Baptiste Chatard is a book in print, which should be easy to buy or borrow. If you have the book already, consider rereading it or lending it to a friend. If you're a pastor or a a parochial vicar, for that matter, or you work in a parish, consider putting a copy or several copies in your parish library. And our anonymous listener sponsor this week has uh, asked us to read a poem about the Soul of the Apostolate, which I will read to you now. The Soul of the Apostolate is prayer. Perhaps you haven't got time to pray. And maybe you are tearing out your hair with all the things you've got to do today. Around you all is chaos, fear, and strife. The world is burning and you're in demand. You'll tell me that you lead an active life. You love God and you know he'll understand. I ask you, is this any way to live? All efforts made without him are in vain. Success is in his hand alone to give, and in the end won't love alone remain. The minutes pass at such a frantic pace, so let them pass and turn to seek his face. The Soul of the Apostolate by Dom Jean-Baptiste Chatard is really genuinely, I mean this, um, uh, worth reading. It has the Flynn uh, seal of endorsement. Uh, Ed, if you haven't read it, I hope that you will read it and tell us what you think of it in a future podcast episode. And listeners, I hope that you'll read it as well, uh, because this week's episode is brought to us by an anonymous listener who encourages you to read The Soul of the Apostolate.
0: And may I say, what a what a fun, different, encouraging
1: yeah, that's really cool thing to it? do. I like that. Yeah. It's very cool. I really do, too. I hope that it bears fruit and grace in many people's lives. All right, Ed, we are back, and um, we need to talk a little bit about, uh, well, we need to talk about um, Knoxville, potentially for the last time, or almost the last time. <laughs> You're skeptical. You look skeptical. Well,
0: we might be talking about the Diocese of Knoxville <laughs> in this context for the last time, but if this is the last conversation we have about Bishop Sticker, I will be surprised,
1: we're not done with things we could report on the Diocese of Knoxville and Bishop sticka, but i don't know how much more reporting on it will actually do because Bishop Richard Sticker, more than two years after the pillar began reporting on allegations of misconduct in the Diocese of Knoxville, Tennessee and on Vos Hestis, reports filed by priests of the diocese um, has resigned this week. Bishop Sticker said he resigned for health reasons that at sixty six with um, with with a raft of real health problems with um, uh, diabetes, severe cardiac issues he 's blind in one eye he 's had some uh, some problems with his foot. With all of those issues, uh, having traveled a great deal across eastern Tennessee in recent months, Bishop Stickus said he realized that it was time um, to uh, to hang it up. To uh, to continue, he said, an active ministry, but at a much slower pace of life. So he and his friend Cardinal Justin Rigali, who live in the Diocese of Knoxville, will, he said, move uh, close to St. Louis, where we know that he was looking for a house just a, just a couple of weeks ago. Um, Bishop Sticka said that he knows that there have been criticisms of his leadership as he put it. He said that there was a certain website which is obsessed with him, by which he means us, but he said that he has always um, tried to do his best as a bishop, that he has never mishandled an allegation of abuse against a minor or vulnerable person, and um, and that he uh, apologizes to anyone he inadvertently offended along the way. Uh, we had saw this coming because we reported six weeks ago that Bishop Sticker was being asked by the Holy See to resign, and we said that that might take a little bit of time for an exit to be negotiated, and I believe we said on this podcast that we expected that when it came, Bishop Sticker would resign for um, health reasons. I have heard from many people in the Diocese of Knoxville, many priests of the Diocese of Knoxville, who say they're very grateful that the diocese can move forward after a period that they describe as a deeply dysfunctional and unhealthy and difficult period, um, but uh, some of them have also expressed what we've heard before in other dioceses, which is um, disappointment that a bishop, after Estes' complaints, letters to the nuncio, uh, two not separate one, visitations. Two visitations, was allowed to resign for health reasons. But honestly, I mean, did you expect anything else?
0: Uh, no, not for a moment. And I, I mean, look, I have kind of mixed emotions about. I, I, I have before, beat the drum and beat it hard about bishops who are permitted to resign when they should not be resigned. Um, They should be sacked. They should be deprived of office. They should be, um, you know, it, it should be an, an, an act done to them rather than something that they are allowed to do themselves. Although I'm not necessarily sold that in Bishop Sticker's case, that would have necessarily been appropriate. Uh, it never was never likely. I don't know if it'd be appropriate. I mean, there are as near as we've been able to find out and as near as we've been able to, to catalog the, the conclusion of the two separate visitations that was conducted uh, into the governance of the Diocese of Knoxville did not return favorable findings um, for Bishop Sticker's administration. Um, but it's not clear to me that there was uh, criminal intent or criminal action on Bishop Sticker's part, which would Merit what would have been effectively a penal privation of office. So it I, is
1: extremely clear to me there was criminal intent on his part. He oh, say on please. He simply. impeded an investigation of sexual abuse on the part of a seminarian of the diocese um, because he he believed in his heart that the seminarian was innocent, and therefore he felt that it was inappropriate to conduct uh, um, to to see in an in an investigation conducted by the review board. He absolutely had the intent to impede that investigation. And is that
0: is that criminal? It's maladministration. It is contra legem. I'm not disputing either of those. Is it delineated as a crime, though? Uh,
1: yes, I think it is categorically what is meant by
0: abuse of office, which is a crime emphasized in the okay. New Book 6. I mean, I was going to say that it's, I, I think you could certainly make a case for it being delineated as a crime in Come and Madre Moravole, which basically criminalizes any bad governance by a bishop, be it to the detriment of the Material, physical, or spiritual, or emotional well-being of of the faithful. Um, but I, I mean, I that that law came into effect in, I think, twenty sixteen, and I've always been a bit iffy with it because it's so broadly drawn that it seemed to me to be less about creating disciplinary law for the right administration of dioceses by bishops and more about. Giving the Pope a legal mechanism by which he could effectively fire bishops at will, which I have ecclesiological issues with to be sure about
1: but as to the question of criminal intent, I also think that the, um, that the misallocation of diocesan funds or the expenditure of diocesan funds for this seminary and outside of diocesan policy is that is an administrative misconduct and negligence Yes is it criminal? I, I, I think so. Was it done with full knowledge and intention? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's... Look, I, I understand your point, which is, you know, Bishop Sticker himself is not accused of sexual abuse or something like that. He wasn't standing at the shredder, shredding documents, but... Well, even
0: Okay, so where would you put this as as someone who, who did the primary reporting on Knoxville and everything here, um, and also did the primary reporting on a similar not similar, but related uh, contextually, a uh, series of events in another diocese that involved the bishop eventually resigning early um, in Crookston with Bishop Hopner. Where, how would you sit those two next to each other, in your opinion, uh, the patterns of action? Because they both they both resigned, effectively, uh, and early, but at, at invitation, really. Do you do you think those are are equally unpalatable outcomes? Do you think there was a distinction between the two? Do you think one should have gone one way, one should have gone another way? How do you how do you balance that for me? Because when I said that I you know I didn't expect and I don't know that I necessarily wanted necessarily to see a penal privation of office. I have in my mind the sort of context in which other cases have been handled that I would consider to be um, even more egregious.
1: Hepner's egregious <laughs> abuse of office came when he pressured a diaconal candidate to recant an allegation of abuse, right? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. days after the alleged sexual abuse of a parish organist in the diocese, sexual assault of a parish organist by a a seminarian, um, gave the parish organist, who was in his employ, indirectly, but in his employ, expensive gifts, took him out to dinner, and according to that parish organist the alleged victim of sexual assault made clear to him that his job would be lost if he raised an issue about the sexual assault it does not seem to me to be categorically different in fact okay. the coercion of a victim seems to me to be the same and in this case there's the it, it does not seem it seems to me that there's conclusive proof the conferral of expensive gifts to the parish organist days after the alleged sexual assault with handwritten Wasn't notes. there an apology letter? I don't know off the top of my head about an apology letter, but there was a lot of sort of heavy-handed communication in the period immediately thereafter. So mm-hmm. it seems to me that the same egregious... And maybe, honestly, maybe this should have been... Maybe once that came out, sort of Sticker tried to pressure a victim should have been our lead. Maybe that should have been how we were telling the story better because that is the Heppner piece of this. If, Heppner, if Heppner's conduct was egregious inasmuch as as he tried to coerce a victim to recant. While in Heppner's case, that's in black and white. I mean, it's a direct sort of conversation. In Sticka's case, the expectation of not reporting the abuse was
0: allegedly the same. That's helpful. I found that clarifying.
1: And, you know, there are these other situations. A woman reports in her parish that a priest has become much too familiar with some children who serve mass in the parish who are in the parish who are in the parish community and Sticka calls her and tells her that he has that she has ruined a vocation and um, how dare she and she needs to recant that i mean there are other times where Sticka allegedly allegedly um, tells people that they have to recant their allegations of misconduct um, or else face terrible consequences and that pattern of behavior is established in our own communication with bishop Sticker, who and again this is not personal but if you want to ask, her, do those allegations have the semblance of truth? In our own conversations with Bishop Sticker, after our very first reporting that there could be a Vosestis in April of 2021, the bishop called us, called me, and uh, I have the call, called me and said, um, uh, how dare you, you have ruined a vocation. Who are you to ruin the vocation of a priest? I'll sue your um I'll have this taken down you don't know who you've messed with, et cetera. So the bishop's sort of pattern of threatening those who raise issues about um, potential abuse and misconduct is established even in our own experience. Okay. For what it's worth. Okay.
0: No, I I, I found I found a little that helpful and clarifying.
1: Oh, good. I'm glad to hear it. So that is where things are that the priests of Knoxville and many lay people in Knoxville tell me that they are relieved, that this was a very, very difficult period for the diocese. And, you know, there, there are things like a priest— who was suspected of talking to the media, um, who, 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 we don't talk about our sources, but who, I don't think there was any evidence of him talking to the media, a priest who was suspected of talking to the media was brought in and threatened with penal sanctions, with a penal precept and penal sanctions for that. So there is this kind of coercive a pattern of a coercive abuse office, of office, which the bishop admitted to me. He said, yes, I did... Threaten him with penal sanctions because I believe that he had spoken with the media, but you have to understand we have a history. So there is this kind of um, thing. So priests and lady in Knoxville say that they're relieved that they don't believe that what they have seen is entirely justice, but that they but the priests at least tell me they understand how the life of the church works and they didn't have the expectation of anything more than this, and that actually they didn't have the expectation of this. I mean, we know priests in Knoxville, at least one priest in Knoxville who has left active ministry because he said that he was so bullied and manipulated by the bishop. And so many priests say they're glad just because their friend can come back to ministry, um, because of, uh, because of this. So they, they say that there's a great deal of, of relief there, even if not entirely justice. But you wanted to talk about how this, so thanks be to God, I think for all that, but you wanted to talk about how this relates to the diocese of, uh, Strict the Diocese of Tyler, Texas.
0: Uh, well, I just think it's you know that's the other American bishop and apostolic visitation in in the news at the moment because we found out last week after we recorded the show, I think it was on a Friday night or something uh, or Saturday that um, there had been this apostolic visitation of the Diocese of Tyler and Bishop Strickland's governance. And you know what what I find interesting there is. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of sound and fury around this story breaking, and you know, a lot of people are saying, "Oh, well, this is the this is Bishop Strickland being sort of targeted for being very out there and publicly faithful and orthodox and conservative, or if you want to phrase it differently, overtly political and partisan, and um, you know, taking sides not just uh, in sort of secular political debates and on broader cultural people, issues, but okay. also." Um, in direct, yeah expressing some fairly direct and in terms uh criticism of the holy father which we have discussed before and particularly around you know we talk about it's it's there is there a fumoponum ponum here you know there is definitely a a clearly delineated law about inciting odium of the apostolic see uh and some might argue that accusing the pope of having a a plan to subvert the faith would you know come under that but you know, again, there's there's sort of one level of the conversation. There's the level of the actual visitation, and we reported that you know people we talked to who who were in and around that in the diocese, uh, you know, said that it wasn't really about quote unquote Strickland's tweets. That it was actually about an underlying pattern of um, of concerns with diocesan governance and sort of the ordinary business of administration, the turnover in staff uh, across a number of sort of key positions finance officer vicar general vicar for clergy all the sort of thing that these offices are sort of turning over on uh you know a biannual or even annual basis in some cases long before their sort of normal terms of office would would um, run their course so there do seem to be some concerns there uh and, and again you know we we were talking about bishop sticker's resignation which he says he offered because of health reasons we've reported was requested by the holy father as the outcome of you know, two separate visitations to, to Knoxville. I I wonder what the likely terminus of uh, any, any ongoing assessment of things in, in Tyler will be, uh, you know, we, we spoke to a few people who said that, you know, part of the interview process for the visitation was, was actually people saying, and who do you think might be a good Bishop of, which would suggest that there is a, if, if a vacancy were to arise, dot, dot, dot. Um, and and I wonder I wonder if we haven't just accepted that there is no um there's no justice, there's no transparency, there's no procedure in any of this. That that's just the nature of the beast. An apostolic visitation is a real thing, it's a real thing in law, but it has become a sort of substitute penal process, effectively. That an apostolic visitation is now effectively code for preliminary investigation, stroke, extrajudicial process. And that ain't great um it's bad when when bishops who have committed you know egregious violations of ecclesiastical law and in some cases they've committed egregious violations of civil law as well are sort of offered what i what i've called the sort of you know ecclesiastical pearl-handled revolver as a way out and and i don't think that's great but i i really don't like what i'm seeing emerge which is this sort of you know we we've talked a lot about transparency in the church we've passed all these laws about you know freedom to talk and transparency we're going to have all that so what we're going to do is we're just gonna come up with another process that's immune from all of the transparency norms that we've made for penal right. process like well, we won't have a penal process yeah, then we'll just have an apostolic, visitation. an
1: apostolic visitation and so we and can that's do it secret we
0: and it's like i yeah. we're right back in the same room again and it yeah i mean that drives me crazy and this you know it's it's bad um if you are a bishop who is the subject of an apostolic visitation, which has now become sort of, you know, sort of Python-esque, no one expects the, you know, the apostolic inquisition, um, <laughs> bursting through your doors and saying, show me your chancery files. Ha ha. You know, the, no bishop, like, and, but there's no justice in that, that it's a subjective investigation, which you are not necessarily privy to the acts of. That yeah, that you, was the complaint of Bishop Fernandez
1: in Puerto Rico, for example.
0: Yeah. I mean, but again, it's a visitation. It's not. It's not a legal process. It's not a criminal trial. It's not. You know, there's no right of defense there. There's none of none of this. You have no legal guarantees. And then that goes to the dicaster for bishops. It goes to the Holy Father's desk if they view it appropriate, and they sort of make their own decisions. Then the nuncio gives you a phone call in the dead of night and says you should consider resigning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I mean, that's not justice. It's not justice for the bishop, but I mean, here's the other thing we talk about, you know, you have said justice in secret is justice tonight, And you're entirely correct about that, but it's not justice for the church and it's traumatizing for the faithful in this country. And in any and it country. it allows,
1: it allows the, um, uh, look in the case, let's talk about the case of Tyler, because I, th- I, I, I know what priests of Tyler have told us. I know what sources in Tyler have told us about administrative issues as connected to that. But you would be um, naive not to think that the bishop's public persona um, overt, sort of, I deny, what did he say? I I, I deny the Holy Father's um, agenda Programmed of Program to subvert the uh, faith. Yeah, undermining the deposit of faith, I think was the quote. Yeah. You would be naive not to think that doesn't play a role you know that the, that that does well, draw to the eye of the type right, that, yeah. that doesn't help to contribute to a um to a perception in the congregation for bishops this guy 's out to lunch or this guy 's a problem and then that might catalyze action on administrative complaints which have been raised within the diocese. It does sound like there had been administrative complaints raised within the diocese about um, a, a number of things that the um Financial administration, administration of schools, administration of religious institutes in the diocese, you'll recall that Veritatis Splendor sort of failed um, utopian community, planned community that was just intended for sort of east, the East Texas wilderness under the um, patronage and with the very active support of, of uh, Bishop Strickland, which kind of fell apart.
0: He was in the YouTube video that they released. Yeah,
1: and he, and really seeming to be,
0: you know... It was secure. a young and dynamic group. I know this because people were wearing skinny jeans and knitted hats halfway <laughs> off the back of their heads in the video. So you knew so, they were young.
1: Yeah, so that's how you knew. But that kind of fell apart with some scandal about the, the, the leaders and some questions about the finances and things like that. So there, there had been, I think, this set of internal complaints about administration and governance, but you'd be naive not to think that the bishops being the bishop, that Strickland being Strickland wasn't a part of what probably gave some urgency or priority or interest to the Holy See. And that in itself, like, because anybody with eyes can tell that, can see, oh yeah, the Holy See would have an issue with him. One bishop, conservative bishop said to me over the weekend, well, he did it himself. You know, and because that will be the perception, if Strickland... it. it Given that the visitators were asking, well, who would be a good replacement for Strickland, if Strickland is replaced—and Ed, we could do all the reporting that we can do about what are the administrative issues in the Diocese of Tyler. And actually, we've been trying to. I'd love to lay out, as systematically as we did for Knoxville, what are the administrative issues in the Diocese of Tyler. And the reason I'd love to do that is because, absent those, it it will endanger people's faith to believe— if Strickland is replaced, that he was merely replaced because he was critical of the Holy See. I mean, that will become. Well, a...
0: you say it will become a scandal. I think it's the ambiguity that will be the scandal. If, look, if the Dicastery for Bishops came out in six months, a year, whatever, and said, actually, we convened an extrajudicial process and we have determined that by. X tweet X public statement X he did whatever Right
1: he did a canonical crime
0: He committed a canonical crime of inciting odium of the Holy See that would in be the faithful fine. I'd be like, well, okay. okay I mean, you can, you, cover, can right? Charge, right. you can argue the charge, you can argue the you can argue the decision, but there's clarity there. I but don't it's think the that's the ambiguity. Necess- right? It's the ambiguity. of the that ambiguity will scandal, and that will lead to.
1: I mean, look, there would be lots of people who would and, not. I mean, let's
0: be clear. It. You mentioned you know Pitt, bishops in Orlando talking about this and stuff. Bishop Sticker left Orlando early so to fly to Los Angeles to go to a
1: rally that the Archdiocese of LA didn't want him to go to, and that the diocese of LA didn't want anyone to go to. That the USCCB president said, "I don't think this is a good idea." So. It's run by a
0: group of people that the local bishops conference from the local state Catholic conference in Arizona where this group came from said that you can't call yourselves Catholic.
1: But Strickland is regarded as a hero by a lot of Catholics who think that Bishop Strickland tells it like it is when no other bishops do. You know, that a lot of Catholics who would say, well, even the so-called Orthodox bishops or the so-called conservative bishops are cowardly and the Dodgers thing proved that. I mean, Archbishop Gomez's approach to the Dodgers thing was we should have a mass and Rather than be there with the potential for things to be violent, we should have a mass of reparation. He took effectively a plan for a spiritual approach, and Archbishop Brolio backed him up on that. If that's a matter of prudential judgment. People can di- agree or disagree with okay, him about but it. I,
0: I mean, I heard some people say that, you know, the bishops were wimping out over the Dodgers thing. First of all, it's the Dodgers. I mean, it wasn't the Yankees. You know, this is a minor team. Um, the, the second thing is uh, they didn't, Take it lying down. They called for a national act of prayer for reparation on the part of Catholics. I can't think of any time the bishops conference have done that for a sports team. I, I agree that
1: they had a more direct, they, they definitely did have a more direct response than they usually have to things. But for people who felt that this was a line in the sand. And, it, you know, it is offensive to, for the for the um sisters Oh, the 100%. Don't get me people wrong. People. What was going on was absolutely in offensive and anti-Catholic. Like 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 I'm not speaking that. And so Strickland is regarded by a lot of people as a, a hero. The Holy See does not take that into consideration. The Holy See is not saying, the congregation of bishops is not saying, well, we can't act in whatever way we need to act because people think Strickland is a hero. That's just not how they think about things at all. But uh, many people will disagree if the Holy See says we found that he had— committed a canonical delict of, um, uh, you know, of uh, encouraging sort of hatred or animosity towards the faith by virtue of these tweets or of the Holy Father, these kinds of inciting a hatred of the Holy Father, these kinds of things. But at least it's something that you can wrap your head around and have an answer absent that or anything else. If he's simply removed or resigned in the middle of the night, then he will be a martyr. Um, Now he may be a martyr anyway to a great, to, to some people, but it is not acting in accord with justice to the people of God to leave them uncertain of why this happened. That's true in Knoxville. That would be true in Tyler. That's true in Puerto Rico. And, you know, in Knoxville, it seems to me that Bishop Sticker's resignation was entirely justified. I don't I don't know enough about Arecibo. I do know Puerto Rico. I do know that our own investigation did not sort of into that situation did not yield clarity on why the Bishop of Arecibo had been asked to resign. It seemed that he basically fell out of step with his other his brother bishops about like seminary stuff and vaccine stuff it seemed like he was too conservative for them effectively even though his vaccine line was basically cut and paste from the the cdf um but but there i still think and and we have said in our reporting and our analysis of that there may well be more but it's not i i do not understand the way in which it can be perceived to be just to the people of god to have bishops pulled like that without clarity about why it's happening for the sake of quelling the kind of wonderment and scandal which can lead, honestly, to sin, which can lead to resentment of the Holy See and can lead to disaffection from the Church and, and those kinds of things. And so one, as you, you're quite right, I would wish that in all of these situations they were handled in a way that allowed people to, even if they are going to make a judgment about why the Church did something, to make that judgment based upon the reasons why the Church did it. In fairness to them, and because they're being regarded as adults,
0: Uh, of course. The other thing to consider in all of this, when you're looking at um, the situation in Knoxville versus the situation in Tyler, is it's by no means clear to me that Bishop Strickland would accept the invitation to resign if it were offered. No, I don't think so. Uh, In which case, then then you are looking at potentially another Puerto Rico situation. If I mean, I
1: think Sticker only. I think Sticker was probably told this is my speculation, but based upon our reporting, I think Sticker was probably told more than once that the Holy Father wanted him to resign, and I think he probably, the first couple times, said no way. And I know that, you know, the I know there was a perception that our reporting kind of was almost making it too difficult to get Sticker to resign, um, but I, I suspect eventually he decided he'd go out, you know, on his own terms for health reasons rather than being removed. I don't think Strickland would do that. In fact, I think, I honestly... I don't know what the holy what Strickland would do if the Holy Father tried to remove him. If Strickland would accept it. I mean like, you know, I I honestly don't know.
0: That would be very ugly.
1: We we've talked uh, about that with Germany before on the way opposite end of the ideological spectrum. Yeah, you know, but wo- these things are a horseshoe, man. They they really are. I think that's really true. Yes.
0: Yeah. It it could happen. We'll see.
1: Ed, I am off next week. I am taking my son to um, camp. My son is going to Camp Voitiwa in the wilderness of the Rocky Mountains, which is a Catholic adventure camp. And um, uh, they didn't pay me to say that or anything like that. I'm just excited to go. And I'm going with my son, Max. Um, As you know, he has some developmental disabilities, so he needs a little bit of extra help at camp, which means I get to hang out at camp all week, and um,
0: I'll be off. Uh, But uh, you'll be working, huh? Uh, I will work part of the week. (laughs) What? it's a long weekend it's fourth of july i oh i kind of forgot it's the fourth of july yeah i know you do you usually do you i i often have to have this conversation with my wife which is are you going to work on monday of course i'm going to work on monday it's a monday why wouldn't you well you know it is a public holiday that the rest of the world is observing but monday is the third of july monday is the third of july and i will um there will be there will be Words written and edited and posted on our website on Monday and also on Tuesday. And if any breaking news happens, uh, myself and Luke and Michelle will be here to to do with it, whatever we deem necessary. I am looking forward to you going on vacation because you're doing something you have never done before. Um, because you usually go to vacation. You, when you go on, quote unquote, vacation, what it means is you just try to keep working Through the meeting of texting me.
1: (laughs) I'll probably do that, buddy. I'll probably
0: do that. You you know, you just just say, are we doing anything with X? By which you mean, are you doing anything with X? And you'll say, what are you doing with I mean, do something with X. And then I'll say, well, I'm going to do this. And you'll say, okay, or you could do it this way. And then, you know, a series of follow-up messages throughout the day of, well, if you need any help, just, you know, send me a, you know, whatever. And I can tell, I can help you to... and and you know it's often harder work you being on vacation than you being in the office that way but this time you're going somewhere as near as you've explained it to me where you you won't have access
1: as far as to... i know i won't have internet i was even saying to kate the other day this is going to be what fun what if the pope dies and kate said if the pope dies i guess ed will have to
0: handle it i'm I, i'm prepared to handle it <laughs> we'll be fine don't worry about it
1: Okay, well, I hope you have a happy Fourth of July, listeners. I hope you have a great Fourth of July. And um, Ed, this week's has been. a Would good you like show. to play a
0: game before we go, GD? Oh wait, what? Well, I mean, it's the Fourth of July. I thought we might have a have a have a Wii game. Play A game on a podcast? Yeah, oh, yeah it's been a long time. It has been a long time, but you know, it's it's we're coming up to a long weekend. You're going to go camping. I you know. I
1: know that podcasts which consistently have games really make their listeners happy, but
0: it's been a long time. It has, uh, but you know.
1: Yes, I'd love to play a game. What is it? Okay, well let's Fourth play a little addition. Yes no.
0: Yeah, well, no, not yes or no. Um, we're going to do greater or lesser. We're going to do a little Fourth of July greater or lesser.
1: Fourth of July. So the way that greater or lesser works is that Ed will tell me three things. Like, let's say fireworks, hot dogs, and uh, glow bracelets, glow neck, you know, glow necklaces. And I'll have to say like, hot dogs are greater than glow necklaces are greater than fireplaces, or hot dogs are worse than glow necklaces are gr- worse
0: than fireplace. That sort of thing. Precisely. Okay. I'm um, and and to that, your your first one is fourth of July, fire- yes or no? Let's do it. Yeah, fourth of no greater or lesser.
1: Fourth of July, greater or lesser?
0: Yes, and your good first one best. is in Isn't fact not what
1: I usually call it. Better, best, good, better.
0: You best. do often call it that, okay? Because you can't just call the thing what I named it, but you know.
1: <laughs> fourth of July, good, better, best.
0: Let's do it. Yeah. Okay. Firework venues, JD, uh, on television, local municipal display, or your own backyard stroke front lawn. Local
1: unis- municipal display is better than backyard is better than. Television, obviously, watching fireworks on TV is extremely unsatisfying. I'm not crazy about – like, what I used to live in Nebraska. One thing that people don't know about Nebraska is that Nebraska is firework crazy, but there are almost no municipal displays because all Nebraskans put on full They're production wrong. scale quality. I mean, suburban Nebraskans. We're not just talking about out on the farm. Suburban Nebraskans put out – rural or urban Nebraskans, for that matter, put on full production level display. I mean, over the Statue of Liberty – quality displays of fireworks and they love it and i never did it's it's very very loud and if you have children it's very and uh, i've never loved it um so but i love a good municipal display you walk down to the park you put out your blanket you have fried chicken you watch the fireworks mrs flynn and i had our first kiss while watching the fireworks um so a a happy memory of ours and how
0: Uh, long have you been married at that point (laughs)
1: <laughs> well we got married in january ed so you can work things out on your own i suppose wow mm-hmm. yeah right. so um yeah okay um oh a great my uncle had a lake house uh, on lake Juan Paupac, which is a lake in the poconos of pennsylvania eastern pennsylvania and we would go to the lake house often and spend a lot of time there in the summer it's a place of great memory for me he had a boat. Lake Wampavac is a big lake. I think it's the biggest man made lake in Pennsylvania. It was made by flooding a valley. Very nice. Anywho, the local fire department set off fireworks from an island, an uninhabited island on the lake, and you could bring your boat up close and things like that. And one year the island caught on fire. As I tell the story, I realize I've told it on the podcast before, but one year the island caught on fire. We were in like one of the very front rows, and my uncle didn't have a fire extinguisher. My mom was mad at him for that. It's a very delightful memory for me now. So the best fireworks are fireworks observed from a boat. I think probably most people would agree followed by municipal followed by anything else.
0: That's fair. I, I myself, I, as a young child, I, I did the municipal thing. Um, but now that I'm older and especially now that we've, we're comfortably into middle age. And so there's the presumption of responsibility. Yeah. I, I enjoy the latitude that gives me to do silly things with fireworks um, in my own front yard. My neighbor and I, um, We'll often sort of rock paper scissors to who's going to drive across the border to either West Virginia or Pennsylvania. And
1: oh, uh, right, I read that in your newsletter
0: today. Yeah, and so uh, last year we had a we had a, we had some big bangs go off. Um, something may have actually have caught fire in my front yard, but my wife doesn't know about that. Uh, she was over in the neighbor's backyard at the time, so she didn't see that. So that was that was fine. So we're going to do that. Um, okay, Fair dogs, enough. JD, uh, hot yes. dog, corn dog, chili dog.
1: Oh, corn dog is the, superior, is the greatest of all dogs.
0: Well, except a cheese dog. We can you can substitute for chili cheese dog if that makes if that makes a okay. difference to you.
1: Corn dog, chili cheese dog,
0: a hot dog. You don't find a a corn dog to be too dry. I'm gonna say now the most American thing that I've ever said, Ed. Oh, tell me you dunk
1: it in beer. Tell me you dunk your corn dog in beer. No, that would not be a sufficiently American thing. That would be damn near German. Uh, Ed, not if you dunk it in melted cheese and ranch. Oh, no, (laughs) not a corn dog. No, (laughs) you wouldn't do that. No, a corn dog is only too dry. A corn dog is only too dry if you don't know how to fry stuff.
0: Okay, fair enough. Oh, so you fry your own corn dogs.
1: I have fried my own corn dogs. Yeah, I mean, look at me, Ed, for God's sake. Do I look like a man who doesn't know how to fry a corn dog?
0: Well, I've been to your house many times. You've never fried me a corndog. I'm I, sorry. I, you know? Okay, fine. Uh, footwear for the 4th of July, J.D., are you... Um,
1: I only wear of, Chaco's, Ed, from Memorial Day to Labor Day and a little bit more on both I sides.
0: don't know what those are, but I'm sure they'll fall into one of these categories. Um, sort of daddish athletic shoes, sandals, or cowboy boots?
1: Sandals are better than... Cowboy boots are better than athletic shoes. Really? I only wear sandals from Memorial Day to Labor Day.
0: But you... Forgive me if I'm disclosing more personal information than you would like on the podcast, but you have an aesthetic appreciation of athletic footwear. Like you, I do. You, I
1: love sneakers,
0: but you don't wear them.
1: No, I wear I wear them, um, but I wouldn't wear them for the Fourth of July. That would be
0: okay. No, no, I no judgments. This is this is all subjective. Um, all right, alternative national anthem. Jimi Hendrix. No,
1: Jimi born Hendrix. in the USA. Jimi Hendrix, no, no, Jimi Hendrix stars. Michael Vanner is the greatest. No, that is,
0: the, that is the national anthem. I'm not asking for alternative versions of oh, the I don't national mean, anthem. Saying, Star
1: Spangled Banner is the...
0: That's just the national anthem, though. We're going for alternative anthems, okay. not the Star Spangled Banner, played by anyone in any way. So, Born in the USA um, by Bruce Springsteen, Living in America, James Brown. And real American, otherwise known as the Hulk Hogan entry music. Ama-
1: yeah, fight for your life. Fight for what's right. Yeah, Hulk yeah. Hogan's walking music. Yeah. Well, um, first I would say Jimi Hendrix Star Spangled Banner.
0: That's that is the national anthem. We're doing alternative national anthem. You can't pick the national anthem for an alternative to the Star Spangled Banner. Beyonce you can't pick I'd like Banner. the Star Spangled Banner.
1: Beyonce Star Spangled Banner was probably second to Jimi Hendrix. Followed by the Dixie Chicks had an incredible Star Spangled Banner at the Super Bowl a few years ago. So those were, I mean, none of those none of those are quite alternative. I'm not aware of like too many Star Spangled Banners played in the sort of alternative genre. Um, but now, now I know what I'm going to YouTube after I make the show.
0: You literally rank none of the things I actually gave you to rank in the category that I named.
1: Yeah, Jimi Hendrix, Beyonce, Dixie Chicks.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, Real American Heroes, JD, uh, GI Joe. Brackets. You have to specify which one. Uh, Rocky or Captain America? And Captain America, should I say, because you're ranking them. Uh,
1: don't know anything about G.I. Joe. Never allowed to watch it. Uh, <gasps> never allowed to play with it. Don't know anything about G.I. Joe. Oh! I'm, my, I come from a Christian home.
0: <laughs> J.D., we were raised in Reagan's America. It was morning on Saturday morning, and you missed G. Oh! Oh, the best part of growing up in the 1980s was the Saturday morning cartoons that were basically commercials agree, for toys I we I couldn't totally afford. Agree, but I was not it allowed was, to
1: watch GI Joe. Oh,
0: oh I'm, I'm so sorry. You know, you can watch whole episodes on YouTube now. Yeah. So you can catch but, up. But the
1: only reason one would do that and like I watch a lot of Gummy Bears with my kids, but it's because it has it's nostalgically valuable to me. I don't mm-hmm. think that I would watch GI Joe. I don't have any nostalgia for GI Joe. It means nothing to me.
0: I the the, the 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 instrumental for the theme it just gives me
1: goosebumps. I don't care about Chills, Captain America. I don't know ch- anything about Captain America. I'm sure he's fine. What was the other thing? Rocky. Yeah. Did you see Creed three? I have not Super seen Creed three. Really yet. revitalized the franchise. Really, really? Creed three okay. left me wanting more. A good movie.
0: Cool. All right. The, I l- see scene at the
1: end was kind of was cool. It was like they were, they were kind of in their heads. It was good.
0: All right, I've heard the cinematography is interesting at yep. times in that, mm-hmm. so I'm I, I'm I'm interested to see Creed three. I have not seen it yet. It's not that I'm. You've not seen, seen it. the other Creeds? I have, yes. Yeah, I like Creed And I was right? I was in favor of them.
1: Okay, so I would say my ranking of Rockies would be what is it? Rocky fights Ivan Drago and Rocco, Rocky four. Yes. Okay, so Rocky four, Creed one, Rocky one. Interesting. That's the way I do you it. You got
0: no love for Mr. T? Yeah. I,
1: again, I wasn't allowed to watch the A team, so I don't have any nostalgia for Mister T.
0: Oh, JD, I you I'm from a wow. Christian.
1: I'm from a Christian home. Okay, we wow. didn't. As I understood it, believers didn't watch the A team.
0: Okay, cool. Uh, okay, JD, who we, uh, these are? These are people often referred to, at least by me, as "quote unquote" America's team. So, bring for me, please, America's teams: uh, the Dallas Cowboys, the Chicago Cubs, and the Montreal Canadiens.
1: Oh, the Canadiens are great. The Canadiens are a great franchise. You know the hockey sweater? I always make you watch that in the fall, that little um, children's story about the kid who had oh, yeah, a Canadiens yeah. jersey and the company sent him a Maple Leafs jersey. Canadiens are a great story franchise. In fact, you know my childhood hero, Marty Berdor. you know his father was a photographer for the Canadiens. That's how he like he grew up around hockey because his dad was a, a team photographer. For hmm. Montreal. But the Nordiques are a franchise that is closer for whatever reason to my heart, I think because they became the Avs. Obviously, they don't have the same kind of history and all of that, but... Something but would them. you
0: call them America's team?
1: The Avs? I mean, a lot of people love the Avs. Patrick okay. Wire, I didn't care for Patrick Weyer, but, you know, Patrick Wire. Okay. Uh, so, America's team, I don't understand why you put the Canadians
0: in there. Like, Well, because everyone in the United... Like, if you ask someone... Um, You know, do you do you have, for example, an NHL team? And they'll say, "Yeah, I mean, there's kind of the local one," but everyone will basically default to the Montreal Canadiens. Interesting.
1: I think most people would default to the Mighty Ducks of Anaheim, which are now just the Ducks. Really? Yeah, because of the movie Ducks Stick Together. Ducks Stick Together. interesting. Quack quack, Mr. Duckworth. Really? I think that's possible. Okay. A lot of people. Nevertheless, so you're you're going to put them Blackhawks.
0: Okay, so what do I think are America's teams here? I mean, the Blackhawks for most of the time when I was growing up, the Blackhawks weren't even Chicago's team.
1: Yeah, but WGN, you know, has that same influence. It's the reason why so many people like Nah, Yeah, but
0: everyone in Chicago hated the Blackhawks when I was growing up. They'd go to the, if you wanted to go to a hockey game, you'd go to the old um, IHL Wolves game. You'd go to the Chicago Wolves. They were, they were, they were popular when I was a kid. Um Okay, but so you're ranking for me, please, in order of which they are America's default team, the Cowboys, the Cubs, and the Canadians.
1: Cowboys, Canadians, and Cubs. Is that is that the question?
0: Yeah.
1: I'm going to throw you a bone here, Ed, and I'm going to say the Cubs. Rookie of the Year was obviously a great movie. And that June Sandberg or whatever his name was, Drew Sandberg, you know. Uh, so Cubs, then Cowboys, then Canadians. It's not my order of preference, but it is the order
0: that I think people have. Okay, fair enough. Um, most American state motto, J.D.? Probably live would probably be live for or die. Well, you're gonna. This is the choice you get. Probably be um, the the first option you have is live for or die. Probably, good old New Hampshire. Labor omnia vincit. Work conquers all. Did you just translate that for me? Yes. Do you think I'm offended <laughs> or not offended by that? <laughs> <laughs> well, do you know the? Do you know the state that that's nope. the motto for? No, I don't. It's the state of Oklahoma.
1: Oh, well, every night my sweetheart comes to me, as it were. The wave and and it sure smells sweet, and the wind goes whipping down the plain. Oh, okay.
0: Yeah, so your options are live free or die. You're
1: doing fine, Oklahoma, Oklahoma. Labora omnia vincit.
0: And your your final option is oro y plata. And I know you speak Spanish, so I won't bother to (laughs) translate that for you
1: uh okay who's that for
0: uh that is the state of would you care to guess seeing as it's in spanish and the state motto is literally gold and silver did you just uh, translate that for me again no i'm translating it for any of the ladies and gentlemen at home who might you know like a little help i think it's probably idaho or montana actually i think it's probably montana you are exactly right. It is Montana. I was mm. flabbergasted to discover that um, the, the state of Montana had its state motto in Spanish. I I did not realize. I you know if you told me it was New Mexico or Arizona or um, Nevada, even I or even Colorado, I'd have been like, okay, yeah, I get that. Um, but no, Montana took me by surprise. So which JD of those three? Could we rank those three state mottos? Do I remember correctly, Ed, that it took my New Hampshire a while to ratify the Constitution? I think that's true. Yes. It wasn't like New Hampshire and Vermont, I think, is a pair were, were on the kind outs late, for a while. Right? There was like a free state of Vermont for a while. Like it it got weird. Yeah, I, I could be
1: wrong about that. I really could be. I'm not I, I'm kind of I'd like to look it up, but I'm not sure. But one of those states, maybe Vermont took a while to ratify the Constitution.
0: I, I think Vermont was a free state for a while. They were okay. they were out on their own. Um, but, okay, so which is the most, could you rank for me, please, in order of Americanness, the state mottos of live free or die, work conquers all, and silver and gold. They gold all silver, represent
1: a certain American, e- I mean, you did a good job yes. of choosing these. They all represent a certain eth- a, a ethos of Americanism, don't they?
0: They do. Yeah. Bonus point, can you tell me which state's motto is, in God we trust?
1: Is, in God we trust? Yes. Washington? Mm-hmm. Oregon.
0: No. Florida. Yes. Cool. Well done. Cool. Good guess. I I I did not know that myself, Florida. which is ironic because there is a state motto. One of the states has a motto that actually says, "and I'm not making Florida this up." Florida has ma- the oldest
1: mat. The oldest. Remember we did that one trivia in Florida was the answer to like every damn question?
0: Yeah, Florida was the answer to every joke. But here's the funny thing is there is actually a state motto that is, and I'm not making this up, this is verbatim the state motto. If you seek a pleasant peninsula, look about you. Maryland. And it's not Florida. Is it Maryland? No, it's Michigan. Michigan. Yeah. Michigan's Michigan entire state motto Michigan is look is at the upper peninsula. I'm surprised it doesn't
1: say if you seek pleasant peninsulae.
0: Well, okay, maybe so maybe they came up with the the state motto before they annexed the Upper Peninsula from Wisconsin. I didn't know that was
1: a thing. Why did they do that?
0: Oh, oh, if you want to if you if you want to get in deep into Midwestern uh, rivalries, the Wisconsinites get really angry about the New Hampshire the Upper
1: Peninsula. Uh, Oklahoma Mich- or uh, New Hampshire Oklahoma Montana.
0: Fair enough. Okay, thank you very much. And your last one please, your preferred Fourth of July movie, you have Independence The Sandlot. Mel Gibson's The Patriot and Team America World Police. I don't know what that is. It's a, it's a movie. I wouldn't recommend it to our listeners. Why can't I have uh, Independence Day? Uh it just wasn't what I picked. Alright, you can have Independence
1: Day. I only saw the Sandlot once and I didn't care for it. Um It seemed to I don't me to understand be understand you at all. No, it seemed
0: it it was derivative. Um <gasps> You shut your mouth, Flynn. The Patriot was this fine. podcast is over this this episode the of the Pillar Podcast is over. But it was
1: also derivative, right? The Patriot was just Braveheart. The Patriot too. was garbage. It was
0: ahistorical historical nonsense. Oh, I'm sure it was, but that's why I just said it was Braveheart too. Yeah, I, uh, Mel Gibson really made a career for a while there. It was just like. But I like the
1: part where they're taking the little tin soldiers and melting them down to make, little lead soldiers, melting them down to make bullets. I don't know. I only saw it once, and I I, I don't remember that much about it. It was kind of just okay. Another Braveheart with America. So um, and then I don't know what Team America is, and I don't. Care. Don't worry about it. You're substituting Independence. Okay, Day. so my choice would be Independence Day. Um, Independence Day wasn't there an Independence Day remake? Probably the probably with a girl as the leader. That's how they tend to do remakes.
0: I don't know. We should remake? It does feel like anything that was made in the (laughs) 90s and 80s is now remade with the sort of lead female comedian from Saturday Night Live of a particular generation. Yeah, or Suki
1: from, uh, they seem to make a lot of movies with Suki from Gilmore Girls. As the as the main character, right?
0: I thought Suki was from Jersey Shore.
1: Cause Suki, no, no, that's Snooky. Suki, I think, was in Ocean's Eleven girl version, and Snooki, Su- Suki was in Ghostbusters girl version, I think. I think they tend to put um, uh, make a lot of remakes with Suki. So there might be an Independence Day with Suki. There was a movie called Independence Day Resurgence, which is what I was... What? Uh, no, that's a sequel. I don't know. Um, I will just say Independence Day... They should do Lady Sandlot. Lady Sandlot?
0: No, League of Their Own is a great movie. League of Their Own is a fabulous movie, but it's not Lady Sandlot. Sandlot is is a particular thing it. about... Oh, never mind. They, the, you If you can watch the scene in the Sandlot where they are playing their only quote-unquote night game of the year on the 4th of July because it's under the fireworks, and you have Ray Charles singing America the Beautiful in the background, a cappella as they're playing baseball. I... I if you, if you can watch that and not tear up a little bit, you hate America. From the
1: sandlot, if I can not tear up from that fat, freckly kid playing baseball? Don't
0: you... Luke Hamilton takes. the Bay Porter is an important cultural figure. You this week's
1: episode that. of The Pillar Podcast is sponsored by an anonymous reader who encourages you to read The Soul of the Apostolate by Dom Jean-Baptiste Chatard. It is in print, and it should be easy to read, to buy, or to borrow. If you have this book already, The Soul of the Apostolate, consider rereading it or lending it to a friend. Again, this week's episode of The Pillar Podcast is brought to us by The Soul of the Apostolate, and I think that's just really, really cool. Uh, the Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and at NJD Production. Our executive producer, whom we appreciate very much, is Kate Oliveira. Uh, we won't be back next week because I will be on uh, vacation, but maybe it'll make a show without me. Uh, Ed, you should make a show without me. I might do that. Why don't you and Kate, our executive producer, make a show? Kate's a we great might. conversationalist.
0: Kate is a great conversationalist. Alright.
1: We'll see. Next week, there might be a show. It might involve Ed. It might involve Kate. It might involve... You could make an all game episode.
0: I could. Maybe I'll have a party. Maybe I'll invite some guests
1: on. Yeah, that'd be you great.
0: Alright, listeners. Catch you later.